We're going to go to Luke chapter 16. But um, as I just want to set it up a little bit, we've been we've been talking about uh, the parables or the stories of Jesus. And um, something else that I have been urged to just bring up maybe every three, four months is, and I read these stats, there was a study of about 40,000 uh, people that followed Jesus, where they, they studied their, their habits of getting into the scriptures. And the, and the study actually showed that if you, if you just are getting into the scriptures and, and spending time with the Lord in the Word of God one or two times a week, there, it really just has no effect on your life. Then if you do it three times a week, it was kind of like a little beep on the map, the research showed. And then all of a sudden, if you spent four days a week, meaning like if you spend more days of your life just opening up the Word of God and letting it do something to your spirit, more days than you don't, four days a week, you can miss three days, all of a sudden, things shot off the charts. Depression down 30%, anxiety down 30%, sharing your faith up 200%. It was unbelievable, the impact, and they had never done a study like this before. And what I want to say is that this isn't like a religious, like, get in the Word. It's, it's like, do you realize the benefits if you just make sure that the rhythms of your life, more often than not, you do something with the Lord? It will transform your life. And we're going to spend the summer on the focus of the prophetic or prophecy. One of the most controversial, divisive issues that the church can go after. And it's the reason why Paul said, if there's any gifts you should desire, it's that one. Because the benefits can be so profound, the impact to the lost, so profound. But at the same time, we've seen so much compromise over it. It can be so abused. It can be so hurtful. And I believe that the foundation of the Word of God is going to be the thing that allows us to build a foundation where the prophetic can flourish like never before. We've been going after this for years, but I feel like we're in a fresh season where if we allow ourselves to be anchored on His Word, we will see the voice of God be able to come in the realm of the prophetic in a way that perhaps none of us have seen before. So that's the heart for getting in the Word. And as we get in the Word this morning, uh, these stories of Jesus are meant to surprise us. I want to go through, we've been going through stories that we all know. This morning we're going to go through what I have found is the least taught story that Jesus taught in Luke 16. And, and then I, I was just, we were at a wedding this past week. It was amazing. Um, we drove our, our little Honda CRV, not our big tank. And uh, that, that car was given to us. It, it's worked beautifully. But um, because I just drive it around town, I, I don't change, like the tires are like almost bald. Few people can relate to doing stuff like that. I change the tires when I can see threads and metal popping out of the tires. That's how I do it. Yeah, I'm just kidding. Well, not really kidding. That's a true fact. Unless it's under warranty. Yeah. Uh, so, so we're driving this car kind of further than we usually drive it. And, and, and the car's fine. There's no issues whatsoever. But, but as we kind of, we're late because we're always late. And we won't put blame on anyone here because no one's here to defend themselves. And, and, so, and so we're driving and we're late to a wedding and, and it, we don't have any important role. We're just officiating it. So I'm not stressed or worried whatsoever about time. And, and so, you know, the car, it starts, you know, it, it, I'm not as confident in its foundations as we get above a certain M, MPA, whatever those are. Um, 
And so I just, and I, and I just thought, the only issue, the only thing I'm nervous about is the tires. And as I was just thinking about how important tires are, <laughs> they're kind of the whole foundational element of your entire car. If you don't have tires, it doesn't matter how great your engine sounds. It doesn't matter what you just spent at the mechanic to fix the air conditioning or the whatever things that happen inside of an automobile. The tires are key. I do think that the word is that kind of dynamic. We can do all the other Christian exercises and activities, but if, if we're not going back to the testament of who Jesus was and how it has transformed history and how it invites us to shape our life, nothing else really matters. All right, how's that for an intro? Okay, Luke 16. So in the fourth century, some monks decided to put like verses and chapter breaks in the scriptures. And they put a chapter break in Luke 16 right after the prodigal son. And then this story of, of the parable of the dishonest manager or the dishonest steward right after that. Luke 16, verse 1, verse 1 to 8. But we were meant to always read those two stories together, the prodigal son and then this dishonest manager. And there's some connections between it. Um, and I've been, I've been really enjoying this, this Middle Eastern author, uh, Ibn Al-Tayyib, along with Kenneth Bailey, have some amazing insights on that. Uh, their work I'd highly recommend if you want to get into this stuff more. But they, they talk about how we're supposed to see connections. So between the prodigal son and this dishonest manager story that we're about to get into, both have a noble master that shows amazing grace to a flawed character. Both show a son or a manager that, wa that wastes the master's resources. Both have flawed character, moments of truth, and they throw themselves on the mercy of their noble masters. And then both stories deal with broken trust and problems that result. So we need to be reading this story of this dishonest manager with the reality of what comes right before it. It's a disturbing story. I think it is literally the one that I have heard taught on the least by any theologian, any pastor, any teacher ever. I can remember almost none. Why? Because it's a really disturbing story. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense why Jesus teaches it. So let's go there. Luke 16. Eight verses. Eight verses, not very long. And it goes like this. He also said to his disciples, the also goes after the prodigal. There was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be a manager. And the manager said to him, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? In other words, he's not speaking directly back to the master. This is an internal dialogue. In fact, he's silent towards the master. Since my master is taking the management away from me, what shall I do? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. In other words, I can get a job again and work for someone else as a management of their house and their resources. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, meaning he had control over the environment to bring them in, they obviously didn't know that he still wasn't in charge of his master's books. He brings them in one by one, and he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, 100 measures of oil. He said to them, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. So he made them write it in, his own, in their own hand. And then he said to them, and how much do you owe? And another had 100 measures of wheat. Take your bill, write 80. The master commended, so pause, and then back to the master. 
So there's several scenes. The exchange between the master and the manager. Then there's silence. And then we have this internal dialogue. And then a scene where he goes to these people that had debts. And he conducts this business that is actually illegal for him to conduct right now. Because he's been let go. And then there's an exchange again with the master. And the master says to him this. He commends him for his shrewdness, it says. And then you're kind of waiting like, well, then he's going to ream him out. And then he just says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light, period. And it does go on. And it says these other things. But the story then is over. That's the end of Jesus' story. And there's almost kind of a break between some other things where he ties together a bunch of other parables. So I'm not even going to read the rest. I just want you to know that's how the story that Jesus told ended. That's it. He doesn't say anything else. The master never reams him out. He only gets commendation. He only gets like, good job, that was that was pretty shrewd. You got me again. Cheat me once, cheat me twice, high five, I guess. And you're sitting there going like, what's going on? So I'm going to put this down right here. So what do we do with that? First of all, I want to point out a couple things. When we look at this dishonest manager, there's a climax in this story, but it's in the middle. The middle is actually when he realizes how he's going to proceed. And then he's praised by his master after he cheats him for a second time. We have to understand what's going on in Middle Eastern traditional culture here. The charges that are brought against him by the master, they're not debated, which means what? They're reliable, which means what? The third character in the story is the community. You've got the master, you've got the manager, and you've got the community. The community's off stage. They're not on stage. But they're very significant because we find out a lot about them. We find out that this manager is well-respected by the people in the community. Why? Because they were nice enough to see this guy was screwing them over and they brought offenses against them. We also see they were reliable friends because there's not even a debate. The master must have been a respected person in the community because people want to help him out. In Jesus' stories, there's, when there's two major characters and one is not noble, not a good guy, the other one always is, but they're both never evil. So the story is about this estate management, and this is what the manager is supposed to be taking care of. And then there's this confrontation. What is this that I hear about you? The initial confrontation. He's not seeking information because he already knows. What does that tell you about the master? He knows some stuff. He's a wise master. So when he's a wise master, he's well-respected. The master is a good guy. The response to a direct order to the manager, give up your books, complete silence, and to turn them in. But he had to actually go get them. So on his way to go get the books that he was in charge of, that gave him authority, the account books are what give them the authority to conduct business in the name of the master. On his way to, to do this, he 
He develops this plan. And he takes the books, and he might only have a few hours to do this, and he goes to the debtors, and he carries this plan out. He's already been fired on the spot. Everything he has done at this point is illegal. The expectation is not that he's going to be silent. I mentioned this a little bit last week with Middle Eastern culture. No is the invitation to a whole lot of arguing about the terms of what's going to happen now. If you tell a Middle Eastern person you're fired, that means, oh man, I better go get my friends to help me negotiate. That's how they respond. The fact that he did not do this tells us several things. He's confessing his guilt, number one. Number two, the master is not only wise, the master cannot be manipulated. If you haven't already realized that everything about a master, or in the previous section, the father of the prodigal, it's meant to repaint our images of God the Father. Jesus came to show what the Father was like. When he was about to leave, his disciples are obliterated with sorrow, and they go, well, just if you're going to leave, just show us the Father, that'll be enough. And he says, have you been with me this long? You still don't know. That's all I've come to do. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Everything that Jesus is doing, he's got one message. It's about the kingdom that's not the kingdom they're expecting. And what he's showing them is what God the Father is like against this completely tainted image that the religious system, the Pharisees and Sadducees, are showing them. And so he, d- he says some of the same things, but he always says them in stories. And he gives stories back to back because he's assuming that some people are not going to get it the first time. And this other angle is going to give them another window in. Or this angle is going to give you a window in. And so some of the take-home points I'm expecting today are we're, we are reiterating elements that are coming at different angles. And I just want to invite you, as we, as we start to kind of transition here, I want you to... I want you to look at some of the things, if you've been here for the last several weeks, start pulling up the stuff that the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you, highlighting in you, moving in you, stirring in you. Let them take another angle. Don't just assume because we prayed that uncomfortable prayer a week ago or two weeks ago that I'm good now. We've been in the most extended season of heaviness that I think many of us have ever experienced. As we've been praying as a body, you know, we've, we've realized that as we, as we worship and get together, we can't just say, like, oh, there's just an atmosphere of, like, a little, little heaviness. So let's just shift that atmosphere in Jesus' name and snap some things off, and it's all good. And all of a sudden, it's, it's beautiful and wonderful, and everyone feels alive and great and amazing. I feel like we have to take the posture of an awareness of what's happening in the world, an awareness of what we're all carrying, do not ignore it, and continue to resist the way of the world with the way of the kingdom. And I even feel like this morning, and the team, wherever you guys are at, I feel like you led us so well. Like, I feel like we've been taking, like, baby steps, and we took a giant step forward this morning in breaking another layer of heaviness off of us, breaking another layer off. We crave it. We crave it. Those of us that are here all the time crave it, but the world craves it. They crave access to the way to get rid of the lies, to get rid of the shame, to get rid of the guilt, to get rid of the anxiety, to get rid of the depression. Stats are coming out. Over 60% of the population is clinically depressed. Oh, I wonder why the atmosphere feels heavy every week. You don't even need a prophetic word for that. I'm going to say, that's not, that's not a doom and gloom. That's just looking at the world. These things happen. 
What do you think happens after times of war or hardship or whatever else it goes through? We've gone through a massive trauma globally. People are looking for hope. And then if you're like me going like, I don't exactly wake up just like oozing with hopefulness, Jesus. So what do I do? Get in the word, worship, surround yourself with people that remind you who you are. Just do those three things and you will not stay the same. Get in the word, worship, surround yourself with people that remind you who you are. You will not stay the same. Do that more days than you don't do that and you will see breakthrough. You will see breakthrough. I feel like someone here needs to know they're going to see breakthrough. We have, a, we have a culture that we go after, like the, the, the unbelievable miracles, the people that haven't walked for their whole life to stand up and walk, the blind to see, the deaf ears to be opened. But are we also the kind of people that can get in the word, they can spend time in his presence, and they can surround ourselves with people that remind us who we are? And can we do that day after day until we start to resist those walls, start to resist those mountains, start to resist the heaviness that the rest of the world is just craving to get some measure of how do I find a way out? This is the way out. Day after day. Some of you don't realize the impact you're making with that text, with that phone call, with that coffee date, with that encouragement, with that taking of the kids, with the, with the visiting someone at work, with that, 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 that Zoom call that you still can't believe. I have one more Zoom call, but I'm going to Zoom with this friend because every time they pray for me, I feel a little bit better there. I can breathe again. Whatever it is, look for the ways, even in the midst of your heaviness. If you're feeling heavy and no one's calling you, would you text somebody? Would you call somebody? Would you send someone an email? Resist what you're feeling because someone else is feeling it too. I guarantee you that will start a momentum as a family. It will come back to you. And when you need something, the Lord is there. He is ready to meet with you. We have to break off this mentality that, like, there's nothing I can do. It's a lie. Do the little things. Do them every day. And you can screw up three times a week. Because <laughs> this is not a heavy burden. This is breaking the heavy burden. This is the way of the kingdom. All right. So this guy is in an honor and shame culture. This manager and this master. This master is supposed to give us an image of the father. We have one question we're asking today. Is maybe I still don't know God. Maybe in the midst of all this heaviness. Maybe in the midst of all this stuff in my life. I need to revisit the fact that I need to see God again with a fresh I. The manager has one goal. He wants another job. He wants provision. He wants safety and security. And he wants to not relinquish control until he has to. And he knows that he has a limited amount of time, and he knows that this, this, this master needs to see his shrewdness and his, his stunning ability to be wise, to read a room, to read his master, and use an opportunity to actually make himself popular in the community. Not because they like him, but because they respect him. No one in the community is actually going to like this guy anymore. But they are going to respect him. And he will have a job. Do you know why he's going to have a job? Because they, they're going to hire him because they don't want anyone else to hire him. Because they know what kind of guy this is. They've seen what he can do. And they don't want him working for somebody else. So they're going to keep him close. That's the Middle Eastern culture. So he knows he has another job. 
No one's going to love him, but they are going to respect him. And they are going to keep him close, and he's taking care of his. There's another aspect of this. The debtors that he goes to, they're concerned about two things. They're concerned about publicly and privately. Publicly, they want to be able to say, hey, we had no idea you had fired this manager when we made these deals. They want to be able to say that, right? And if, he has, if they just have private meetings, they can say that. But then in private, they can meet without anyone else knowing the eyes, the side comments, whatever kind of deals are being made. And they can accept a deal that will benefit them, and they know is going to benefit this manager. But they also know that they can't go and tell the master what just happened because they've taken a deal and they're guilty. And these debts are huge. There's, there's somewhere about a year and a half wage for a farm worker. And the manager wants this in their own handwriting. He was specific about it. Why? So that everyone can see that they wrote this with their own pen. He didn't manipulate it. They were willing accomplices. So then what happens in the town? These are the things that are happening in between the lines. In the town, what's happening? Word's getting out. When a manager like this, or master like this, starts to excuse debts, he starts to exercise generosity, everyone starts to find out. And when people find out, buzz starts happening. It's like free money is falling from the sky. One of the guys that owns a bunch of stuff, he's releasing debts. And there's a buzz. And then the master then has two options. Here's the two options the master has. He can confront the debtors, he tell them what happened, and he can make them pay in full. He could do that. He doesn't do that, obviously. The second option. The second option is that he can enjoy this reputation of a generous master. But you know what? He already has that reputation. That's the key of seeing this story. He doesn't get a new reputation by being generous. He was already a generous master that everyone respected, which is why he had the information to begin with. So this confrontation does not give him a false identity as a gracious, generous, loving, sacrificial master that will relieve debts. It reinforces what he's already done. Because he confronted this, this manager, and he had every right, not just to fire him, but to make him a slave, his entire family, to him. And this guy was supposed to negotiate. He was supposed to say something like, hey, my, my family has served you for generations, or hey, that's not what really happened. He doesn't say any of that. He receives the accusation because it's 100% true, and everyone knows that this master is wise, and you cannot fool him, and he's also generous. He also knew this guy is not going to sentence me to death or to slavery. So he took a risk knowing that he had a generous master. In fact, everything he did was reinforcing what was already true about this master. He'll cover me. He'll save me. I don't have a job anymore, but I'm going to get one. So the master has this choice. Confront the debtors or essentially let his new reputation reaffirm his already existing one to enhance his reputation because it did not create it. It was already true. And then to pay the price of the manager's salvation. 
So what is this doing? It's painting a picture of what God is like against the religious system. The father that Jesus is trying to make sure they understand has every intent to cover you. But the results are disturbing, and that's what's meant to make you sit uncomfortably. The result is this wicked manager kind of wins. He succeeds, and then he gets a commendation. He gets a compliment. But here's the thing. The community offstage, that third character, they're going to discover these details. And they're going to be amazed at his intelligence, but they're not going to trust him ever again. Trust has been broken. So again, there's all these elements. What's God like? Can you trust him? Because you can't trust this manager. And are you going to live your life trying to keep the people you can't trust close? Or are you going to live your life trusting a good father, a good master, who's going to take care of you when you screw up? And in fact, what Jesus is, is egging them towards is there's aspects of this evil man who understands what my father is like better than you do. He at least understands that he can manipulate him and try to take advantage of him by taking advantage of his generosity and his willingness to cover your salvation and not make you a slave. And Jesus' stop point is you just sit on that. At this point, Jesus is saying, you'd be better off like this evil manager just understanding that about my father. I want to read a quote by T.W. Manson. He says this, There is all the difference in the world between I applaud the dishonest steward because he acted cleverly and I applaud the clever steward because he acted dishonestly. We must take the purpose of the final speech to be this. This is a fraud, but it is a most ingenious fraud. The steward is a rascal, but he is a wonderfully clever rascal. So they call it this. It's, it's called the biblical kind of theological obnoxious term would be, this is the psychology of oppressed peasantry. The psychology, the psychology, let that say, you can say that privately and write that in your phone. The psychology of oppressed peasantry. I was like, what the flip? This is, I've, like, I've heard a lot of theological little, and you know what the best description is? Robin Hood. Robin Hood. So my brother and I, when we were uh, little, um, we'd rent like uh, movies. There was this place called Farmor, which was funny because that is what grandmother means in Norwegian. But that was like a drugstore that had, that had uh, videos. And it was like 10 cents a week to be late. So I'm, I remember when my mom returned this, the cartoon Robin Hood. Did you guys ever see it with like the bear and the fox and stuff like that, right? Robin Hood and Little John running through the forest, laughing back and forth what the other had to say. I mean, I don't remember any song. I cannot, I am the worst memorizer in the history of, of movie songs. I've got basically that whole movie memorized. And it was because my brother, Tommy, put it on every day for at least a couple years of childhood <laughs> after school. And, and I think it was a total of $11 for my mom to, to pay two years of late fees when she finally took it back. I remember going back and go like, what's the point at this point? I'm like, it's a, it's a deal. Anyway, Robin Hood. What's Robin Hood about? Robin Hood is all about robbing from the rich to give to the poor. 
but it's this, this oppressed peasantry, meaning what? The people, the peasants, the poor people are being oppressed, right? And so even though Robin Hood is robbing from someone, there's a goodness in the way that he goes about it, right? Because he's trying to help the people that are not being cared for. This is a similar dynamic. This similar psychology is what Jesus is doing, but this is what Jesus is doing. There's this concept of robbing from the generous because you think it's the only hope for the mercy you don't deserve. Robbing from the generous. Why? Because you think it's the only hope for the mercy you don't deserve. This manager knew he didn't deserve anything coming. He's desperate. And he also knew he had a generous master. He knew who to rob from. He cheated him twice. And the Lord is almost like saying, I at least dare you to try to cheat me, to rob from me, to take what I'm making available to you. And he's showing that this guy gets me to a degree. He gets that I'm generous, but he doesn't understand the closeness that I'm inviting him into. He doesn't understand that he's not seeing the signs that because I haven't sentenced him to death, maybe I will actually cover him even though he intentionally acted evil towards me. Maybe if he comes to me and repents, he completely misses the invitation to change the direction of his life. And what it sits there and lets you think about, Jesus does, is this. Everyone in that audience knows that that evil manager is screwed. He will do it again. He hasn't understood. He's taken advantage of generosity without receiving it to change his life. And Jesus is saying, at least start with seeing that he's good, that my father's generous. He is not an egomaniac looking to punish you. He'll even let you try to take advantage of him. But character breeds character. Sin breeds sin. Non-repentance breeds non-repentance. And in this, he just lets the audience sit with it. And they all know this is not going to end well for this guy. But it's in the context of the prodigal son and his older brother. And if you weren't here for that, there were two invitations that the father of the prodigal gives. Because this son comes back and he's blown the wealth. And all he says is basically, I'm not worthy of anything. And he's sitting there in shame and grief and guilt. And the father immediately cuts off his pre-prepared speech and says, stop it. Give my son his robe, his ring, and his authority. He's my son. This is his identity. And we're left with this reality and this question. Will the son receive the identity that he really is? Or will he continue to walk in shame for the rest of his life? We do not know. That's the question. Will he be so dejected by his previous actions that he can't actually receive what the Father is trying to invite him into? That apart from his effort, apart from his performance, apart from his achievement, that he is still being invited in and given everything because he never earned it to begin with. Meanwhile, the older brother is sitting there with this seething, seething attitude of bitterness, resentment, and comparison. Under the premise that he actually did something to deserve his sonship, his authority, his inheritance. And I'm both. 
I spend my life going back and forth, feeling unworthy or feeling comparison and bitterness, and I put all this effort in, and how come they are getting promoted? How come it's working for them and not me? And you're not meant to choose one or the other. You're meant to see which one do you need to listen to today. And Jesus is going, maybe you start with this evil manager. If you can't relate to the older brother or younger brother, at least see that God is generous. You're so obsessed, older brother, with your bitterness. You're so obsessed, younger brother, with your absolute shame that you can't see what's right before you of this amazing father. That's the invitation today. Will you trust a good father? Will you waste what's given? Or will you pretend that you actually deserve it or earned it? Will you step into identity apart from being worthy, apart from a culture where we have been given so much and so much of us live with the guilt that I haven't done anything with all these things I've been given. I've been given great resources. I've been given an education. I've been given connections. I've been given a move to a great city. I live in a great apartment. It's flipping tiny, but it's a great apartment. And here I am. I've got all these gifts. It doesn't matter whether you're in the industry, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or dad or sister or brother or whatever you are. We live with this constant guilt that we're not living up to what God has made available to us. And we slowly see extreme examples and we can't identify. But we're all here. We're all here. We're all wrestling with not really being able to trust this kind of God, this kind of Father. And our lenses are still all tainted. Will you step in in a culture that says you should have achieved this by now. You should have more by now. You should have made it this far by now. Look how far behind you are. And I'd invite the worship team to come up and we'll close with this. I wanna give us three applications. Number one, every time you get into the word, you wanna find what you identify with, but don't go first and foremost with just your junk. Go with one question. And that's what Jesus is saying right here with these two stories. He's saying, what's the Father like? Every single piece of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation always go back to what is this teaching me about what the Father is like. Then I can feel, I can be invited into what the Father is inviting me into from this piece of Scripture. This is the only way you were ever meant to interpret Scripture from the beginning of time. What is it saying about God, this Father, what he's like? And then what does that mean for me? Don't start with your junk. Start with his goodness. He'll filter the stuff out, and he'll bring you into the place you're meant to land. What's he like? He's a, he's a master. He's generous. He's generous if you even cheat him one time, two times. Probably ongoing. Eternally generous. Jesus wants his disciples to see this view of God with new eyes and to take risk like this manager did, but take risk from a place of receiving his invitation. You're supposed to see, imagine what this manager could do with that kind of shrewdness and risk if he actually understood what the master was really like. The potential 
to transform a community. It's meant to be sitting there for the community to see. And you think that you're happy because you got a couple debts removed. Do you see the potential when the, when the union of a manager and a master that are in connection, the impact they can have? Look at your own character. What crisis are you in? And what is God like? Three questions. Maybe you're coming today. The crisis can be anything. It can be something that you're not willing to kind of even address. Chronic anxiety, a major loss. And you can even compare to other people. Their stuff's worse than mine. So what am I to even be worried about this? What's your crisis today? That's one of the hardest things for me to be present with every time I get alone with the Lord, is there's always some measure of crisis in my life, big or small, that I'm not inviting him into. What's your crisis? Excuses don't work. He wants in. Finally, look at your own character. Just like bad character breeds bad character, sin breeds sin. We're in a community where life breeds life. Breakthrough breeds breakthrough. Faith breeds faith. Hope breeds hope. It's contagious. And the invitation today is to look at your own character. You might be starting as a younger brother or an older brother, or maybe an unfaithful manager. But Jesus wants you to sit in the tension and say, You don't have to then look back and say, I did all this for all this length of time, and now I'm worthy. It's you're worthy now. You're worthy now. Now. Please stand. We're going to be officially done. I'm going to invite them to lead us in a song. There's a few minutes before those who have to get kids can get kids. But I want to do this. If you walked in today with any measure of heaviness, can I just get a, a hand to be raised? It can come from anywhere. If you walked in with a little heaviness, see these hands? I want, if you're close by, just lay a hand on their shoulder. Ask them if it's okay first, actually, would be great. <laughs> hands up. There's a lot of people preparing. You had heaviness when you walked in today, even the slight amount. A few more people can put their hands up. You can all receive prayer. It can be everybody if you want to. I walked in with some heaviness today. If you had heaviness when you walked in, just keep your hand up. And as we worship, I want you to release the good father over them. If you've got something specific to share to them, as long as it's uplifting and encouraging, you can pray that over them. But I just want us to worship together with that awareness of what kind of God we worship. And release a breaking of heaviness and a releasing of life that comes through encountering this kind of God again, this kind of Father, this kind of generosity, in Jesus' name.